of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Hey, Cornwall, so good to see you. Glad that you're with us this weekend. If you've been with us, you know that for almost three entire months, we have been immersing ourselves in the best sermon ever. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, clear back starting in September, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached found in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And there is so much in that, and it is so good, and there's so much we've had to skip over. Honestly, we could spend months more studying all the things that we've already looked at going deeper. We could study the things that we've skipped over. But we come to today, the very last week of this series, as we come to the conclusion of it. And as we see in this uh, Kingdom Culture series, Jesus' primary and favorite theme that he talked about over and over again was the kingdom of God. And I figure, since I've come to this verse over and over in this series, we couldn't end the series without coming back to it one more time. Out of Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus said, he went throughout the Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. As we saw all the way through this good news of the kingdom, Jesus says, here's the good news is that the kingdom of God is now, through Jesus, available to ordinary human beings here and now so that we can live in the presence and the power of God on a daily basis. Not just a then and there someday, but a here and now today that we can live in, in God's favor. We can live in his forgiveness, in his care, in his provision. And he just throws open wide the doors of the kingdom and invites everybody to come and be a part of this kingdom. Then he starts this sermon, the best sermon ever, and he says, this is what life looks like in the kingdom. If you're a citizen in the kingdom, this is how you live. This is how you operate. And it's very different from the rest of the world. In fact, it's kind of the antithesis of everything that's going on around you and even the stuff that you've heard, but he invites them into this. Now, as we saw last week, if you're with us, as he preaches through this best sermon ever, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he kind of turns a corner and he starts to land the plane. He begins his conclusion, and in the last section of this sermon, he gives this whole list of contrasts. And we looked at one last week, and what you see is that Jesus is really pushing for a decision, pushing for a choice, and the choice that we looked at last week was this contrast of the, of the, the small gate, the, the, the large gate, the narrow path, and the, and the wide road. And he, and he offers them this invitation to take the narrow road, take the, the small gate to life and to experience life. 
Now, last week, I said that the title of the sermon was, I'll close with this, part one. This is, I'll close with this, part two, because of uh, the, the conclusion that Jesus uh, lays out there. There's so much to cover. Before we get to that, however, I want to take just a minute and look at two scenes that are bookends to the best sermon ever. The scene that happens right after he gets done preaching and the scene that happens right before he starts preaching because in looking at these two different scenes, I think we'll understand more clearly what he's getting at with his conclusion. So he gets done preaching the best sermon ever. Again, my dad was a pastor. Some of you were raised in church. And in the old school, it seemed like when the pastor would preach his sermon, when he gets done, they say the benediction, that's a church word, the benediction is closing prayer, blessing, what have you. And then the pastor would go to the back door as people filed out of the sanctuary and they would say, nice sermon, pastor. Uh, well done, reverend. Uh, or if they're really old school, they'd use the word parson. Nice sermon, parson. And, and even if they never heard it, even if they slept through it every week, you know, nice sermon, they'd shake his hand, nice sermon, pastor, nice sermon, parson. So Jesus is done with his sermon kind of his closing remarks, closing benediction. And what we see that happens there is not just this mindless, nice sermon, Pastor Jesus. And by the way, do you mind if I call you a PJ, you know, Pastor Jesus, or would you rather be Reverend Jesus? So, you know, it, what we see is this. In Matthew chapter seven, uh, it says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So first thing is that there's crowds. We don't know how many. We know that the way Jesus taught, the things that he said, the heart that he came, the attitude he came with, it was attractive to people, even people far from God. And that people, it says that other times as he was teaching, people trampled each other to try to hear him. There were times where there were thousands of people, you know, when he fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 20,000 people. Times when he was preaching where he had to get in a boat and go out onto the water because people kept pressing him into the, into the shore there. So there's crowds of people and they're loving what he's saying and they're not just saying, hey, nice sermon, Reverend Jesus. Way to go, Pastor Jesus. It says they were amazed, amazed. Another way to, to actually translate that word is dumbfounded. This was like, ooh, ah, wow, whoa, powerful, profound, deep. This is unbelievable. And it wasn't just what he said, though that was a big part of it. It was that he said it with authority, different than the rest of their teachers. I mean, you remember if you've been with this. There were times they say, well, you heard it said, but I tell you. And he takes an authority over the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, over some of their traditions. Uh, even it, it appeared, and we, we covered this, it appeared even over the Old Testament, but he speaks with authority. But it's not some arrogant, like, you know, pompous, bombastic way of saying, you know, look at me, I'm all this. There was just this quiet confidence because it's Jesus. And he's speaking the, word, the words of truth. Truly, truly, I tell you, he says over and over again. In fact, there was a time where Jesus says, listen, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So here's Jesus, who's the authority, has authority over all of heaven and earth, and is the authority on life. So he preaches this sermon, and people are just amazed by it. The crowds, thousands of people are amazed by it because of his authority. 
The scene that happens right before the sermon, I want us to take a look at, because there's a little subtlety that is so easy to skip over and miss. Looking back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, it says, large crowds, so it's the same group, remember? Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the re region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he goes into the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Now there's two groups here. But what's interesting is he doesn't distinguish the two groups like would normally be done in first century Palestine. He doesn't say men, women, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free. He doesn't even say educated, uneducated, wealthy, poor, powerful, weak. He doesn't even say good and evil. He points out these two groups. The two groups are the crowds and his disciples. Now you say, okay, well, that, that's the 12, right? I mean, they're here. he's got his 12 disciples. Yes, the 12 are there. But I don't think he's just talking about his 12 guys. I think he's making a, a very different distinction between the crowds who are amazed and his disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we, we need to be very clear about this. Jesus loved the crowds. He loved them. And it wasn't an ego-driven, oh, I love the big numbers. I love the popularity. I love the energy when they're all here. I love the buzz about all that. It was not that at all. He loved the crowds because he saw in each one of them dignity and, and value and worth. And they were the very reason that he had even come to the earth to be a part of this kingdom. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we read this. When he saw the, here it is, the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the crowds. He's not angry at them. He's not mad at them. He's not judging them. He's not condemning them. He has compassion. He's moved by them. He loves them. He wants for them the very best. And what he sees when he sees this crowd is that most of them are just drifting through life. They're just going the path of least resistance. They're just doing what everybody else is doing. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he loves the crowds and he says, you don't have to live that way. And he invites the crowds to leave the crowds and to be a disciple. And there's the distinction. And I think that's what you see when we get to the conclusion of this sermon of what he's inviting people to, what he's pressing them for, this decision, leave the crowds and be one of my disciples. All right, so we're at this conclusion of this, this sermon, the best sermon ever. And in the conclusion, as we talked about briefly last week, he does all of this whole list of, of contrast. Like there's two gates, there's two paths, there's two destinations. There's two kinds of trees, there's two kinds of fruit. There's two approaches to getting, you know, into the kingdom, those kind of things. And at the very end is this very familiar story where he does this contrast where there's two builders. And some of you know this, this story inside and out. There's two builders. They're building two houses. 
They have two different foundations. And then both of these projects, the quality of the project is tested by a storm. And there are two completely different and dramatic outcomes about this. He tells this story about, about these two builders and these two houses. Now, again, if you were raised in an evangelical church, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know about the Catholic church, but if you were raised in an evangelical church, as a kid in Sunday school or whatever group you were a part of, you were probably taught a song with hand motions about this story. The hand motions go like this, you know, and it's not, not rock, paper, scissors, but there's a rock involved. You know, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and then it just repeats itself. The wise man built his house upon the rock, the wise man, you know. And then it goes to the next verse. The rains came down as the floods came up. So you know what I'm talking about? You're already singing it, right, in your living room, right? The rains came down as the floods came up. Okay. And then it repeats, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, rains came down. Same, same thing. You know the story. If you are not raised in church, you're saying, I don't know the story. I don't know the song. I don't have the hand motions down you are probably taught a story that is very, very similar to the message that Jesus concludes with. This story is really more like 170 years old, but it's about this triad of many swine, also known as the three little pigs. You remember that story, right? Like there's these three pigs, and they're each going to build houses, and they use different materials. They use straw and sticks and brick, and then their projects are tested. This time, it's not with a storm. This time, it's tested by a big, bad wolf, and there's this repeated refrain where he says, little pig, little pig, let me come in, and and I'm going to test you on this, and I want you, if you're in our building in Skagit or Bellingham or in a living room with your family or in the garage at Second Wake Up or in your car or wherever you are with, I want you to answer, I want you to fill in the blank out loud. The wolf says, little pig, little pig, let me come in, and the pig replies, not by the what? Okay, I just wanted to see if I could get you to say chinny, chin, chin out loud in front of other people. So, well, way to go. I'm proud of you. Not by the hair of my chinny, chin, chin. And then you see how big and how bad this wolf is. And what you don't know, many of you don't know, is that this was long before the D.A.R.E. program, this was an anti-drug story. Because the wolf, he's huffing, and he's puffing, and he's doing blow, and that's a big bad wolf, and it ends up cooking his life. All right, so I get uh, off the point here, I digress just a little bit. So let's go back to Jesus' story. Jesus tells this story, and there's a, a comparison, and there's a contrast. There's some things that are very similar but there are some things that are different. And when you understand the contrast, when you understand the variable, the difference, you begin to see the point of the story. All right, just so that we're all on the same page, let's read this story through, straight through. It's found uh, again in Matthew chapter seven, uh, starting at verse 24. And it says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." 
Now, you can just put those side by side, see the comparison, see where they're the same, and then see the, the subtleties of what's different, but how dramatic the outcome changes on the difference. Okay. So he's just preached the best sermon ever. He's winding down his conclusion. He comes to the end of his conclusion, and he says, therefore, therefore, with all this in mind, after you've heard everything that I've had to say, after you've just listened to the best sermon ever about kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, therefore everyone, and there had been thousands of them listening, everyone who hears these words of mine and. So apparently, just hearing the sermon wasn't enough. He says, now everyone who's heard this, all of you who've heard this, you've heard these words of mine, and, 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 and there's more. Like, I'm not gonna just let you get off the hook with just hearing the sermon. You don't get credit just for staying awake or just listening. So what is the and? And why is this important? Does he say, everyone who hears these words of mine and agrees with them? Like, is that it? I'm looking for people to say, you know, you're right, Jesus. I think you've got a point there. Is that what he says? No, no, no. Everyone who hears these words of mine and believes them, is that it? It's not just an agreement, but actually like, you know, not only do I agree, I, I believe this. I, I, think you're, I think you're right. I, this is right. I, that's not what he says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and studies them, like we've already said, there is so much we haven't even come to the, you know, come close to, to plumbing the depths of these words. There's so much more you could get. So is it those who study it or, or anyone who memorizes them? Like, it's just three chapters. I know it's a big piece, but you could memorize this and that you, you'd always have the, the sermon amount with you to memorize them. Or what the thousands did, they, they were like amazed. Is that enough? The crowds heard him and they were amazed because of his authority. It's not what he's looking for. He doesn't want them to just agree. He doesn't want them to just believe. He doesn't want them to just study and just memorize and just be amazed. Those are all good, but not good enough. And this is where he presses them. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and puts them into practice. He says, listen, I don't want you to just agree and compliment me and be amazed. The reality is this, if you want these words to change your life and ultimately to change the world, then there's this one capstone catalyst and it's obedience. That will make all the difference in the world. Not just hearing them, but putting them into practice. You decide, you've heard, you've been amazed. You might even agree and believe and study and want to go deeper. But are you going to do something with these words? What are you going to do with them? Are you going to apply them to your life? See, Jesus isn't teaching just to, to entertain people. He's not giving these words even just to educate them. He doesn't care about impressing them or informing them or, or inspiring them. He wants to transform their lives, to change them completely, and to have them be a part of this kingdom that will change the world completely. And he knows it's not just agreeing and being amazed that this is what separates 
the crowds from the disciples. The crowds are amazed. The disciples are transformed. You see this over and over again with Jesus. There's a time in John chapter 8 when he says this. To the Jews who had believed, they believed. They're believers. They're believing Jesus. They're believing what he's saying. They're believing all that. That's not enough. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Otherwise, you're just an amazed crowd, a believing crowd, but you're not my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's the difference here? Is it just believing? No, it's holding to. It's putting them into practice. John chapter 14, verse 15, he says this. If you love me, you will obey what I command. You're going to do it. You're going to apply it to your life. You're going to obey me. You're going to follow me. The very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he goes back to the Father, we refer to it as the Great Commission. This is where he said, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Not just go and get a big crowd of amazed people. Not just go get a bunch of people that, that say, well, yeah, we kind of agree with this or we believe this or we're going to study this. And he says, I, I'm not looking for a big crowd. I'm looking for disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see that one piece that one piece that makes all the difference is this putting it into practice. It's, it's holding to his teachings. It's obeying. Now, let's be honest. Straight up, we don't like the word obey. This part of our, just our nature, you know, we, we, we fear the abuse of power. Don't be a mindless, obedient, you know, sheep, you know, all that. We, we, we don't like that whole thing. Don't tell me what to do. We want to be independent. We don't want to just agree with things and then just acquiesce and say, okay, whatever you say, I'll just follow into the slaughter. This whole idea that there's this obeying is this mindless, robotic following. A little side note on this one, and and I'm not here to, to try and change things. Traditionally, in weddings, traditionally, uh, we're talking years ago, the traditional wedding vows included the words like this, and I will love, honor, cherish, and obey you till death do us part. You know what word never, ever shows up in wedding vows anymore? Obey. Now, I get abuse and all this and that, but we, we obey obedience that has such a negative connotation to us. Obedient schools for dogs. I'm not a dog. I don't want to obey. I don't want to be, I don't want to be one of the sheep. But when Jesus comes along and says, hey, if you want to follow me, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you want to leave the crowd and experience this narrow path that leads to life, a life that will withstand the storms, you're going to obey me. But obeying me is a courageous, creative obedience. It's a bold obedience. It's a discerning obedience. It's using your intellect, using your imagination, using your intentionality, and obedience is being joyful as you follow me. Remember, he's inviting them into the good news of the kingdom. 
that they can have this with God life, with God's favor, with God's forgiveness, with his power, with his protection, with his presence. And he says, and to be a part of that and to experience this life in all its fullness, it's this joy-filled it's, listen, it's not obligation to dutiful compliance, but an invitation to trust-filled obedience. I know there's a lot of words in there, but let's talk about it. It's not an obligation to dutiful compliance, but an invitation to trust-filled obedience. This dutiful compliance, that's what some of you were raised with. In, in your whole faith upbringing, your church, your religion, whatever, it was, it was just behavioral modification. It was just do this, don't do that. And, and it, why? Because it's right, it's wrong. It's just this, it's our obligation, it's, it's our duty. We, we comply to these things. Listen, dutiful obligation in this compliance, that is met with reluctance, devoid of, of all life and drudgery. Contrast that with a willingness, joyfully, trusting and obeying Jesus because that's the path to life. I mentioned my dad was a pastor. He and my mom and my sister um, in the early 60s I think 1961 or so, I moved to Ruston, Louisiana. Um, not Louisiana, Louisiana. Go Louisiana Tech Bulldogs. So we, they moved to Ruston, Louisiana, and then my brother was born uh, in, uh, in 61. In that church, and it was a small church, under 100 people. My dad was a pastor, young pastor. At that point, I mean, um, man, I... He was born in 35, so he was like in his 20s. Hard to believe that my dad was ever that young. So he's in his 20s. He's this young pastor, first, first pastor at a small church. And there's another young couple in that church, Joe and Anita Womack. They're about the same age, and they have a daughter that's like my sister's age. And so they became very close friends. My dad was a pastor. Joe was a professor at, at Louisiana Tech, and he was on the board. So they inter interchanged a lot, exchanged in life. My mom and Anita Womack were best friends. Um, and so they did stuff together all the time. This I don't think was intentional, but in the fall of 1962, my mom and Anita both found themselves pregnant. Interesting thing. Well, nine months later, I was born in June of 1963. Anita's son, Paul, was born like a month later. So Paul and I had been friends in utero, like our moms would be together, and we kind of had this close proximity. So from birth, our families were together. So Paul was like my best buddy straight out of the womb, and we, went, we would go over to their house. They would come to our house. We went to church together. As I said, my dad was a pastor. Joe was on the board. We, as Paul and I grew up, we went to Sunday school together. We sat in church on Sunday morning together. We sat in church on Sunday night together. We went on Wednesday night to prayer meeting. We went to revival meetings together in the summer. We went to camp meeting together. I mean, we were like that. And, and outside of church, we did all kinds of stuff together. So, fall of 68, Paul and I go off to kindergarten together, A.E. Phillips uh, Elementary School. Our kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Orr, sweet lady, has us in, and Paul and I are inseparable. We're inseparable. And so, we're in kindergarten this one day, and we're in a circle, 
And uh, this is before uh, social distancing, by the way. This is 1968. We're in a circle, and Mrs. Orr says, okay, kids, why don't you tell us one of your favorite songs? So, you know, we're kind of going around the circle, and kids are saying all the favorites, you know, I'm a little teapot short, you know, that whole deal, twinkle, twinkle, little star, A, B, C, D, or the all-time favorite, of course, happy birthday, or eensy, teensy, spider, all those things. Goes around the circle, it gets to Paul and I. We're sitting right next to each other. We're inseparable. We've grown up together. We've been in church together. She says, Paul, Bobby, what are your favorite songs? Here's what we said. Just as I am, trust and obey. We're bringing out hymns that we've been raised with that we've heard in church over and over again. We're ready for a, a kindergarten crusade. We're going we're gonna to sing just as I am and have an altar call and have these kids give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to talk about trusting and obeying in this life of discipleship. I mean, we, we, we were so immersed in it that these were our favorite songs. They were hymns of the church. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You see, the trust-filled peace is what makes obedience joy-filled. Think about this in any other arena of life. If there's someone that you're allowing to speak into your life, to influence you, to change some part of your life for a desired outcome, a goal, something better. If you don't trust them, you won't follow their instructions. If you have a coach, and I don't care what kind, a vocal coach, an athletic coach, a life coach, if you don't believe he or she has some words, some perspective, some knowledge, some plan, some way to help you achieve a goal, you're not gonna follow what they tell you to do. If you have a financial planner, but you don't trust him or her, you're not going to follow their instructions on how to live, how much to save, how much to invest, what to do, how to diversify your portfolio. You're not going to trust. If you don't trust them, you're not going to, you're not going to follow their instructions. If, if you have a personal trainer that's trying to help you drop some weight, get some strength, lower your cholesterol, if you don't trust that they know what, you're going to, that, what they're doing, you won't follow them. It doesn't matter if it's a counselor or a doctor. If someone is trying to help you achieve something and you don't trust them, you won't obey them. And then you have Jesus. And Jesus, who says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have authority over all of life. I am the author of life. And I have all of the authority on life. And so, he says, obey me. Trust me. Now, I've mentioned all the way through here, this series, the influence that Dallas Willard and uh, the Divine Conspiracy, that book, has had. So it, it just would not be right, it wouldn't seem right to end the series without at least coming back to Dallas Willard one more time. So Willard says this. Plainly, in the eyes of Jesus, there is no good reason for not doing what he said to do. For he only tells us to do what is best. Jesus doesn't wishy-washy come along and say, I, I think there might be a better way. No, he says, no, I, I know I'm the author of life and I am the authority on life. And I know what's best, and I'm only going to. I'm not going to play games with you. It's not how Jesus operates. 
I'm only going to tell you to do what's best. It's a narrow road. I get it. That's why most people won't do this. And the best way, and Jesus' way, is not always the easiest way. And it's not always the most fun way. And it definitely is not the most popular way. There's a wide way that most people go to. He says, no, I'm calling you to a narrow way. But I'm telling you, it's the best way. And it leads to life. That's why he would call us to that. You see, there's, there's another time where Jesus, Jesus uses kind of a, a, a building picture, a building analogy. He says this in uh, Luke 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? He's saying, just you know, think this through in building terms, whatever. So, so we need to talk about this in kingdom terms. And Jesus is saying... Be sure that you count the cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, brilliant German man, some of you may be familiar with uh, some of his work. He wrote a book, and he used this, this idea with the title, The Cost of Discipleship. The cost of leaving the crowd. The cost of going on the narrow path. The cost of building on rock, not sand. The cost of discipleship. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, and if you're going to experience this life, it will cost you something. Jesus says, let's be, I don't want to bait and switch on this one. It will cost you something. If you're going to follow me, it might cost you how you use your time and how you spend your money. It might cost you how you operate in your relationships. It might cost you in your sexual behavior. It might cost you in some of your habits or your entertainment. It might cost you in your mindset and your thoughts and your perspectives and your, your values and your priorities. It might cost you with, with your judgment and your attitudes towards others. It might cost you in your involvement to getting, it might cost you, it might cost you your very will. Because Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must, he must deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, Jesus is really clear. It will cost you. Count the cost. Again, this is why most people in the crowd just wander and go in the default mode. They just drift through life. They're unwilling. It's a lot more difficult to build on rock than it is on sand. He says, I, I'll grant you that. But he also says, what you will gain I mean, when he tells the parable of the pearl of great price, the guy who sells everything joyfully, eagerly, willingly, can't get rid of it fast enough because of what he gets in return. And Jesus says, don't you see? I'm inviting you to this kingdom, to this with God life. And yes, it will cost you. Most people won't do it. But I'm asking, will you? Will you? Will you leave the crowd and be my disciple. You know, there's this whole thing with the contrast. There's another cost that isn't spoken of enough. Bonhoeffer talks about the cost of discipleship. Jesus subtly throws in this cost of non-discipleship. What price will you pay 
If you go the wide path, what price will you pay if you just drift along with the crowd? What price will you pay if you build on sand? There's a high price to be paid there. Let's go back to his story, Matthew 7. He says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now listen, Jesus isn't trying to use scare tactics here. We looked at this last week when we talked about the narrow and the wide, how, yeah, maybe he's talking about eternity and heaven and hell and all that. That's true. But maybe he's just saying, hey, listen, this is the reality of how life operates. This is the, you see it in other arenas of life. And if you always take the easy path and you never discipline yourself and you never do, that there's going to be some crash. I mean, let, let's, we've all seen this. We, we, and it's so much easier to see in others than in ourselves. But we've seen friends or family or kids or spouses, you know, coworkers, and, and the things they're doing, what they're involved with, and, and we're just like, oh, man. Boy, this, it's just a matter of time. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it might be financially, it might be relationally, it might be physically, it might be spiritually, but they're, they're flying, you know, flying loose and just going after whatever. And you're like, this is, gonna, this is a dead-end road. And when you see it, you see it come, you can see it a mile away. Because they're just going with the easy path. And they never think about what is this going to mean to them? What's it going to mean to them physically? What's it going to mean to them financially? What's it going to mean to them in their career? What's it going to mean to their kids? What's it going to mean in their marriage? What's it going to mean to them you know, physically? What's it going to mean to them spiritually? See, there's a, there's a big price to be paid there. It may not be immediate, but it will be paid. And I... I can't speak for you. I'll just be honest about me. The biggest regrets I have in my life are when I knew this is God's will, this is what Jesus wants, this is my will, this is what I want, and I went this way. I mean, I look back. I see it in my own life. and Some of you do too. Some of you wouldn't admit it. Some of you will. But Jesus said, there's a price to be paid there. So you kind of have to count the cost. And maybe he throws out this, just run a cost-benefit analysis on this one. Yes, there's a price to be paid to follow Jesus. There's a price to be paid to take the narrow path and to build your life on the rock. But tell you what, the price to be paid for the self-centered self-focused, self-pleasing life. What could come from that? Not even worth it. That's why Jesus would say, if you'll lose yourself and your life for my sake, you'll find it. All right, so he gets to the end of this, this sermon and basically he says, listen, everybody builds a life. Everyone builds a life. Every single day, you're building your life. And you can be building it beautifully or you can be building it poorly. You can just drift and not really give it any attention or you can be deliberate. You can build it on the words of Jesus or you can just build it on your own desires and your own wants and what everybody else is doing. Everybody is building a life. You are. I am. And it's something that we build every single day. Are we going to build it 
on the rock and the life that Jesus invites us to are on the sand with everybody else. And everyone faces storms. You see, the sermon and the story are not about storm avoidance. That's not possible. Jesus isn't saying, well, if you'll do this, you'll never face a storm. He says, listen, there will be storms. You will all face storms. Some more than others, some bigger than others, but you're all going to face storms. The big question is, how prepared are you to weather that storm, and what condition will you be through that storm and on the other side of that storm? I mean, Jesus said very clearly, in this world, you will have troubles, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. This is not about storm avoidance. That's not Jesus saying, hey, enter my kingdom and you'll never have a hardship in your life. In fact, in some ways, your life is going to get more difficult, but it's the best life. It's not about just avoiding the storm. And one more thing, I'll close with this, maybe. So the contrast talks about the crowds and the disciples. He talks about putting these words into practice, not putting these words into practice. And the crowd and the disciples and those who practice and don't practice, he doesn't refer to them as good people and evil people. He refers to them as wise people and foolish people. And Jesus looks at his crowd and he looks at us because he loves the crowd. He loves us. And he only wants the best for us. He's saying, don't be a fool. If you want to live a wise, a life of wisdom, then Jesus just invites us to follow him. So just follow me. Yes, it's a narrow path. Yes, it'll cost you. Yes, it's difficult at times, but it's the best life because the kingdom of God is available through Jesus now for ordinary human beings so that here and now we can experience and live in the presence and the power of God. Years later, the Apostle Paul, who is very familiar with the teachings of Jesus, he would say to the church in Ephesus, he would say, be very careful. Don't drift. Don't go in default mode. Be very careful in how you live. We're talking about your life. We're not talking about a recipe. We're not talking about a, a career venture. We're not even talking about your, your retirement. We're talking about your very life. Be very careful in how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So Jesus asked his disciples, Will you leave the crowd? Will you become one of my followers? Will you take the narrow path? Will you build on the rock? Not the easiest route, but it's the best. And it leads to life and life in all of its abundance. And it leads to a life that is solid and secure even in and through the storms of life. I wonder, as we close this series, if right now, Bellingham, Skagit, wherever you are in your living rooms, in your homes, if you just, for a moment, just, just be quiet for just a moment. Close your eyes if you want. Bow your head. You don't have to if you don't want. But I wonder, right now, are you willing to say, you know what? 
Jesus, I don't want to just drift with the crowd. I want to be a disciple. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you because you only want the very best for me. And if you ask me to give up anything, it's because you have something better for me. I just want to trust you. I want to obey you. And I want to daily build my life on you and your words, the rock of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray. I pray that we would willingly, joyfully surrender, submit, obey to the author of life and the one who is the authority on life. Our rock, Jesus Christ. Amen.